Hi, I'm Jacqueline Freeman. And I'm Sarah Korn. You're listening to Kitchen Table Alchemy, living in full color. This is a podcast for people who see and spread the magical in everyday life. Okay, so today we're doing a little back porch alchemy instead of kitchen table alchemy because we live in Arizona and it's 76 degrees out today while the rest of the country is sitting under I don't know what kind of weather. But um, So you might hear airplanes going overhead and neighbors playing music. Somebody's having a barbecue a couple of houses down. So, um, But today we're going to spend a lot of time talking about... Um, consent and the Me Too movement and Time's Up and things like this. Um, this has obviously been sort of taking over the airwaves for a while. And I, um, a friend of mine on Facebook posted an article by David Wong um, that was published on Cracked called, and of course now my phone's freezing and won't let me scroll, Seven Reasons So Many Guys Don't Understand Sexual Consent. Um, really, really powerful article. So, uh, we, we do have it linked in the show notes if you're able to, to look and see that, but otherwise just Google the David Wong seven reasons guys don't, under- so many guys don't understand consent and like read the article. Like seriously, we'll wait. Yeah. Pause the recording, <laughs> pause the recording. and go read it. It's <laughs> that good. It is that good. And we're gonna, we thought, should we try to summarize it or, and we real no, it's one of those things you really just you really have need to, to read. As written, yeah, and yeah, it, he uses there were so really many times. So, so many great examples. He's using like screen stills and things like this. So, um, so the visuals are also really important to make yeah. his point. Um, and like, I think, did you know this Star Wars? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, like, he uses yeah. just like, um, oh gosh, what is Han Solo's name in real life? Harrison Ford. Thank you. Yeah. He's like, there's too many examples. In movies and television. So let's only look at Harrison yeah, Ford movies. Yeah, it's going to pretty much focus on Harrison Ford movies. So um, so these are all, like, massive, like, iconic characters, right? Yeah. Um, so seriously, like, we'll have a cup of tea while you read the article. All right. So after reading that and getting some real eye-openers as to how ingrained... It is in our culture that uh, men are supposed to pursue women until they get what they want. And women are, you know, all just trying to play hard to get and that sort of stuff, right? Um, uh, You know, it really raised the question for me as a mother of uh, a 12-year-old boy and a 14-year-old boy. um, You know, how do I talk to them about this stuff? How do I... You know, explain, uh, you know, what exactly consent is and how it works, especially when they have been growing up in this culture and facing this cultural programming. Um, and, uh, yeah, what I know you right. have a boy as well, son that you who's raised, and who's tw- now turned grown. 27 in September. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I actually did my undergraduate work around a lot of this. And um, really looking at women's images in the media and was pointing out stuff like this. And mm-hmm. especially in the South, right, in the in the 80s and 90s and in the South, um, I got told over and over again, like, what a man-hater I was and what a prude I was. And I was making a mountain out of a molehill and, you know, like all this kind of stuff. So... I am, you would complain if boys like snapped your bra and stuff like that. Well, and look, and these things in the movies, right? The very things oh. that Wong is talking about. You pointed that stuff. Yeah, out Yeah, I pointed okay. this stuff out. So, <clears throat> and was told I was making a mountain. This is a mountain out of a molehill. This is just men and women, and you know, this is how it is, and you just need to accept it, and you know, all this other kind of crap. Um, and you know, I, I loved being told that. Uh, that I was a man hater, right? And my response tended to be, well, no, actually, I'm not. I'm absolutely positive that if I ever meet a man, I will fall madly in love. <laughs> the problem is I haven't met any men. I've met a lot of boys and 40-year-old bodies, but I haven't met that many men. Um, and, you know, Wong talks about in the article about how so much of this is adolescent fantasy. Right. Right. Yeah. And that that's what, so that's what's programming. That's what's running our. To be that guy who's so cool that you can just walk up to a girl and make a move on her and she'll be like, 
oh, you know, her knees will just go weak and she'll yeah, fall totally. in love with you and have your babies. And that was one of the things that was really amazing to me from the article, too, that I had never occurred to me. We talked about this before I turned to Mike on when he talks about Leia in the slave costume. Yeah. It had never occurred to me that the thing that made it so sexy was that she didn't want to wear it and that she was being debased by wearing it. Right. That had that had never occurred to me. Yeah. I um, remember as a kid that kind of disturbed me. Oh, yeah, really. Like, yeah. I just, yeah, I didn't, I was like, no, she's a princess and that's, you know, yeah, I, I didn't like that they... It had gone there. It was like, oh, really? You had to now be like all the other movies? Because that was the cool thing about her in Star Wars, was that she was a more kick-ass character, and she was fully clothed through the whole thing. Right. right. Well, apparently she wasn't sexy until she was naked and debased, right? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. And it is something that I have heard lots of guys talking about, that... Leia in the Leia in the sex slave costume was their first like masturbatory image, basically. Hmm. Right? I've heard a lot of guys talk about that, wow. and um, it's that <laughs> we've got some deprogramming to do, you know. And so, being aware of this kind of stuff with my son, um, who's twenty seven now, and I <laughs> remember uh, he was, you know, sitting watching Cosby or whatever, which of course now is like, ugh. but you know, the television program in the day uh, met my standards. And so the commercials that came on in between did not, right? So I would get really angry about the commercials that came on between, but he's like watching television and I'm cooking dinner and I hear him do this wolf whistle, right? Hmm. <laughs> that little oh, thing, right? Okay, right? So I hear him do this wolf whistle and I go outside and I'm like, I go into the room and I'm like, what was that sound? And he was like, oh, I whistled. I was like, what are you whistling at? Is there a dog? And he was like, no, there was a girl. And he's like two or three years old. I mean, he's really, really young. Really? Really, really young. And so, and most people are like, oh, they're so cute. Ha ha ha. No, but I knew this is gender programming. It starts this early. Right. And so I think like, and that's why I love that Wong ended the article with a clip from Ratatouille. He's showing this is starting from the very beginning. It's not cute when they're four and criminal when they're 40. Right. It's, it's, it's not okay at any stage. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, and Rush Limbaugh would have called me a feminazi, I'm sure, but I'm okay (laughs) with that. And so, um, so I was like, was it a dog? And he was like, no, it's a pretty girl. And I was like, why are you whistling at a person like a dog? Well, that's what Cappy does when he sees a pretty girl. Well, is it is she a dog? No. Well, then why are you whistling at a person like she's a dog? Do you want me to whistle at you when it's time for you to come? No. Do you want me to talk to you like a dog? Should I put your food on the floor? No. And I'm like, then why are you whistling at a woman like she's a dog, right? And so um, from, like, from toddlerhood, wow. <laughs> this is me calling out my son who, you know, um, you can feel sorry for him if you want to. That's fine. So, um, <laughs> you know, that's the best I knew what to do at the time or whatever. I maybe would handle it slightly differently now, but it it definitely was just like whoa do you know what i mean because it because yeah. no one thinks about it like oh you're making a, you're making a mountain out of a molehill it's not that right. big a deal right yeah. um and then i remember i don't know a few six months later a year later something like this the television's on and some commercial with women in bikinis draped across you know car something, hoods or yeah. whatever and then miles goes male fantasy <laughs> So by five, he had it. Right. You you have reprogrammed him. Good for you. But we did have lots of conversations about, like, and it's something that I said to him all the time was, no self-respecting woman is going to allow this. No self-respecting woman is going to allow that. And when he got into high school, you know, I made some comment about something, and he's like, yeah, you know, you've said stuff like that all my life, and it's not true. And I was like, notice I have always said no self-respecting woman's gonna, right? Right. Because, of course, by high school, he discovered that girls will let you do all kinds of things. Mm. And so then we had a conversation about, okay, so if a woman or a girl is not self-respecting, right, then why is she not self-respecting? Like, what's happened to her? For her to be in a place where she feels like she has to fling herself at you or she feels like the only way to get your attention is to, like... Dress really uh, provocatively or whatever. Right, exactly. Yeah. Like, 
Um, and I know for myself, I was very, very promiscuous, but I, I was, um, in my teens and twenties, but I was, um, I was sexually abused as a child. And so my sexual development was taken away from me by my molesters. And, and I recognize now that my promiscuity was me trying to gain my age. Right. right. Like not only try to go to the place where I lost my power to try to get it again, but I realized just recently that it was also about, um, because my developmental arc was hijacked away from me by being really promiscuous, I was generating experiences to try to figure out what I liked and what I didn't like. Right. But it was very dangerous because that could flip and, and I could be in a situation I didn't want to be in or someone, you know, I can like, yeah, I mean, I still had my stuff hijacked for me. Do you know what I'm saying? Isn't it interesting that even subconsciously people realize and even kids realize that, that sex is so much about power Mm. and that, you know, and, and, you know, a lot of this, you know, stuff really ties back into other things that we've talked about, about how, you know, men have more power in the society and, um, uh, and, and so, and women have been taught just like men have been programmed to think that, uh, you know, all women play hard to get or that, you know, you can force yourself on a woman and force her to love you or whatever that, that, um, or that forcing yourself on women makes them love you as as the longest point is. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, women have been programmed with those same things. Exactly. Right. And that that's, you know, to the point that people look at this stuff and go, well, that's normal. That's just boys being boys. And, and, you know, women think it's normal to, you know, uh, to play hard to get or to, um, you know, have to use their sex, uh, to get power. Mm. And I think, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, um, and I didn't do this very much, uh, but I think it is something that, um, is a big part of sexual development. Right. And for women, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know what role it plays in for healthy development for men, but I think, um, in our present society, women recognizing that they have that power over men, right? That, um, cause it is a, it is a means of power, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, and we'll say like, oh, using your feminine wiles, right. <laughs> do you know what I mean? But, um, and we also slut shame women that do know how to cultivate that and mm-hmm. use it. But I think it's a very dangerous line, right? Because, um, in trying to wield that power, it also makes women incredibly vulnerable because, um, because it can be, it can be rested away so quickly. Right. right? Like, um, generally speaking, guys, guys are built to have more muscle mass. So there's going to be, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, um, their strength is going to be in the upper body and women's strength is going to be in the lower body. And, um, so, uh, so that being rested away, um, and we've all seen, multiple movies and read multiple books where that happened, right? Where a woman is trying to manipulate some guy with her sexuality and, and, and he rapes her basically. And depending on how we read the book and how it's set up, we may even see that as like, well, that's what you get. Do you know what I mean? Um, and, uh, we, Jason and I went to go see Tosca this morning. So, um, and I've talked about operas before, so, you know, everybody knows that we're big fans or whatever, but, um, we went to go see Puccini's Tosca this morning and it was really, uh, it was interesting. Well, at first I didn't, I didn't see what, you know, opera always has this clash of values, right? That's what the whole thing is about. Um, one of the characters is really wrestling with this decision, um, that sets these two sets of values up against each other. And, and opera is all about that grinding itself to a, to a head, um, and we left and I didn't get what I was like, I didn't see a clash of values. I don't know what the problem is. Do you know what I mean? But, um, uh, later recognized that, um, that the, <laughs> the clash of values is, uh, her quote unquote consenting to give herself to this very corrupt police chief, uh, who is torturing her lover in the next room in order to get him to quit torturing her lover. Right. right. Uh, so he was doing this thing of, you know, the only way I'll stop torturing your lover, the man you love, is uh, is if you 
consent to sleep with me. Right. Yeah. If I can have you. Right. Yeah. So, um, and right before he makes this proposition, he sings this whole aria about how gentle consent and being doe-eyed does nothing for him. He, he wants fiery, violent takeover. That's what gets it. That's what gets it for him. Right. So, but this is the clash of values is, um, her sleeping with him to save her, to save her love. Right. Um, or killing him. She ends up killing him. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the only way she can get out of the room. He's locked her in the room. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? She sees yeah. a knife glinting on the table. And um, and there's all this imagery and metaphor going around to let you know that, like, this is the this is actually the clash of values. These two equally repugnant things in the eyes of an audience in 1899 is that a woman sleeps with a man that's not her husband or kills someone. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Right. But it's amazing to me that here we are in 2018 and we actually haven't moved very far away from those ideas. Right. Um, and, and Wong talks about it, uh, in what step is it? Uh, number two, that all sex outside of heterosexual marriage is wrong. Right. So, um, and it's clear that we haven't moved away from this idea because when I watched, when I was watching it this morning, like, I was like, okay, so she was, she was like coerced into rape basically. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it wouldn't be consent at all, but obviously in the, in the audience's mind, it would have been, um, she's coerced into rape and she killed the guy to, to save herself. Like, mm-hmm. uh, there's no clash of values there. Like she was clearly doing what she had to do in that situation. But we were talking before we turned the mic on about the two cases of, uh, Centoya Brown and, um, Sarah Cruzman, right. That were both teenage prostitutes, um, that killed one killed a, a John and one killed her pimp. And, and it wasn't seen as self-defense. They were both given life for, for killing people that had, like, drugged and beaten. And, you know, they were kids. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? And what, and what I thought was, uh, I don't know, interesting uh, is uh, that in the article about Sarah Cruzman, who I think was the one who had killed her pimp, um, uh, she... So they had a, a thing in the article that said that um, Governor Schwarzenegger, like on his last day of office, commuted her sentence to 25 years with a pos- 25 years to life with possibility of parole. So right. he didn't actually get rid of her sentence. No, no, no. He just reduced because before her sentence was life without possibility of parole. Right. So, so well, now we'll put you, we'll let you have right. After so generous. Years. So generous. I know. Yeah. Was like, like, no. There's really? clearly she killed the guy. But you know, if 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 someone had been drugging and beating and raping a man, and he killed them to get out of the room, there would be no question whatsoever that that, that, that was self defense. Yep. No question whatsoever that that yeah. was self defense. And and even in the case of. Like Sarah Cruzman, so this happened at seventeen, and she had been she Cruzan. Sorry, I'm so sorry, so sorry, Sarah. So um, Sarah Cruzan, um, she had been groomed for six years, right? So basically, she was pulled into prostitution at eleven, and this happened when she was seventeen. She's thirty five now, right? Um, And so, if we're looking at someone who's seventeen years old that has been like groomed for six years was pulled into this at 11 years old. And we can't see that that's not consent and not okay. And it, and we, we have to have to have a conversation about whether or not that's self-defense when she kills the person that's been beating and raping her and pimping her out to get away. Like, um, and the, there was an article on Centoya Brown that was written by Newsweek in November of last year, November of 2017. That's like, well, you know, this case is a lot more gray than people think it was. She stole money from the guy. After she killed him. Right. Yeah, because she probably had nothing. But the clothes on her back. Right, because exactly. Because the pimp didn't even give her, let her have her ID because she's not supposed to be able to get away. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. It's really infuriating. But, um, like, going back to those conversations I had with Miles in high school was like, okay, so if a, if a, if a woman has, if these things are happening right, that are showing that there's this break in her respect, then, like, something has happened to her 
to make her behave in that way, right? And that doesn't mean you should take advantage of it. If you are taking advantage of it, you are part of that story of abuse. You're the next person that came along the line and, and took advantage of her, molested her, abused her, however you want to look at it. And, and like her allowing it or whatever, like it doesn't mean that there's any less complicity Mm-hmm. From the guy's side. Like, yeah. if you recognize this is the behavior, and it's one of the things that, so in, in all of our kids, the way that we raise them, like, you hear people um, in the South, for sure, still to this day, I don't know about other parts of the country, but people will talk about, like, an 8 and 9 and 10-year-old girl being fast. Oh, she's fast. Right. Oh, it's basically, like same it's thing. like slut shaming for children. Yeah. And the thing is, is that nine year olds don't know about like sex and Frenching and all this other kind of stuff unless something has happened to them. Right. So to be shaming the girl for the behavior that's indicating that she's in a bad situation instead of looking into the situation. Do you see mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Like, once we know this behavior is a signal of something being wrong, mm-hmm. we're now complicit if we're not working to change that situation, right? And I think that's something that's really powerful. And I think that's a conversation to have with boys for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like not only building up the sort of idea that these are full humans and you shouldn't talk to them like dogs and whistle them like dogs and, you know, all this kind of stuff. But um, But then when they get to the place where they realize, like, well, no, girls will let me do all kinds of things to them. <laughs> do you know what I right, mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> um, well, let's have a conversation about why. Yeah. And what would put her in a situation that she thinks this is the only way she can get attention from you? Yeah. Or, oh, I know how I got off into that trail. Like, in those times when I was really promiscuous, what I really wanted in so many situations was just to be held. I wanted mm-hmm. someone close to me. Yeah. I wanted someone to pay attention to me. I wanted to be the center of someone's world for a moment, right? right. Coming from this abusive, neglectful, neglected background. And the only way I knew how, I knew that I could get that if I, if I had sex mm. for that, for those moments, right. I had the attention. I had their full attention. I was the center of their world. They were completely wrapped in me. Do you know what I mean? Um, that was the only way I knew how to get that I for sure knew how to get it. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, but the people that should have taught me that there were other ways to do that are the ones that abuse that. Right. So, um, yeah. Yeah. You know, I think it's a lot more complicated than, you know, than I originally thought. Um, cause you know, I thought, uh, for a while that consent was just like, uh, you know, listening when a woman says no, right. That it's like, how do you, uh, you know, when a woman says no, no means no, right? And so, um, you know, that's something that I've taught my kids. Um, you know, but recently I've realized that there are these other nuances, right? Yeah. Like, well, what if you're at a party and she's drunk, Right. you know? And she's, you know, it's like if she's, because in that position, she might not be able to say no, right? If she doesn't have her full, you know, faculties in working order, um, you know, a guy could say, well, but she didn't say no, you know, it's like, yeah, but she couldn't really, you know, and, um, and, and just her decision-making ability is compromised at that point. Right. But I think too, like just expecting a woman to fully say no, Mm -hmm is also just like the David Wong article is asking us to like really pay attention to the messages that are sent towards men and what this is leading to. I think we also have to look at the way that women are raised. Right. So there's been several conversations that I've been, that I've had with people since the me too and the times up stuff has started trending. And a lot of the guys are like, well, then women need to be clear. It's like, okay, but women like me are clear and I get called like a bitch and pushy mm-hmm. and bossy and overbearing and all this other kind of shit, right? So, right. Um, and I, so I think we need to really pay attention and look and see that women are trained to give other social cues, right? They're, they're not trained to say, no, I don't want that. They're trained to be more subtle, you mean? Totally. Because we're trained not to upset people, right. not to hurt anyone's feelings, especially boys that have feelings, Right. right. If a boy has feelings for you, then you really better not hurt him because 
either you're like a terrible person that's crushing this guy, but right. I mean, how many right. movies have we seen this in? Or you could be unleashing a beast that's going to kill you because enough, right? Like this is also, um, what is it? 80 or 90% of women that are killed are killed by someone they know. So, um, and because she said no, <laughs> right? No, yeah. I don't want you anymore, and shut the door. And then he came back later with a gun and killed her. Like so, um, and women know this. So mm-hmm. there's there's the like, and don't hurt anybody's know, feelings. We also but, know that uh, men are not always good at picking up on subtle cues. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So it's like it's kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah. It, it really, it really, really yeah. is. If yeah. you have any, any, uh, and again, it's that's that's part of like giving us our full humanity, right? Yeah. That do we have a real choice to say no? Um, but I think a lot of times women laugh nervously when they're uncomfortable, want to get out of a situation, mm-hmm. and. Um, and guys take that as well. She she was laughing, so she was fine with it. Yeah. And any woman watching the situation could see, no, she was really really uncomfortable and trying to get away from you. Yeah. Right. Um. So, um. But women are absolutely taught not to say no. And when we do say no, oh, I'm sorry, but I mean, this is something that has been written about quite a bit. You know what I mean? Like, we we couch say it. No we and apologize for it at the same time. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, but, you know, maybe it's just me. I'm sure, like, whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. We, we, we are absolutely not trained to be, like, specific and assertive and blunt. Yeah. Right? That gets read as bitchy really, really quick. So um, so I so I think there's a problem in that, too, right? Like saying, oh, well, if you have to listen for the no, and if she doesn't say no. And there was something I read not too long ago was saying, for these reasons, we can't rely on that. Like, are you getting an enthusiastic yes? Oh, gotcha. Oh, that's a really great way to look at it. Yeah. Because if you're not getting an enthusiastic yes, the answer is you may, no. you need to assume <laughs> that it's a no. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and that, an enthusiastic yes, it's a no. Yeah. That is good. See, that I can use. That's like simple enough. Use with my boys, and they will get it. <laughs> <laughs> no, totally. It's not an enthusiastic, enthusiastic yes. yes. It's, a no. it's a no. Yeah, yeah totally. And <laughs> and I think that still gives women work to do because then we have to own our desires, mm-hmm. right? Um, which is another thing that has been right. Yeah. And that you see in movies a lot, too, is the girl who, like, doesn't want to tell the guy that she loves or she likes him and, you know, and then some other girl comes along and snatches him up and... Yeah, totally. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and and I think... And she's what, a bitch. Yeah. That other lady, right? <laughs> yeah. It's, it has nothing to do with me, like, not being able to face what I want and need, but um, let alone what I desire. But I think... Um, we, we still live in an era where female sexuality is demonized and, um, and so women have a lot of issues to work through on, um, on being able to claim their desires and be okay with that and not feel like a wanton slut because we want it. And, um, and I think cause that feeds into it, right? The sort of idea that like the guy has to help us give, mm. you know, because if he takes our permission, if I didn't give my permission, then, I then I'm not a slut, oh, right? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Peggy Orange—he's the one driving it, right? Yeah. And we just went along with them in the. Mo- we got swept up in the moment, right? Right. Um, Peggy Orstein talks about that in her book Schoolgirls. I'm going to write that down so we put it in the show notes. Um, she talks about how girls can't say, um, girls can't say no until they're allowed to say yes. And that the problem with teen one of oh right, do you get so it? because we say that women shouldn't be having uh, sex outside of marriage, basically, that that's the they can't say yes, and so right. as long as they can't say yes, they also can't say no. Oh. And um, she talks about how like one of the problem one of the problems with teen pregnancy is that girls that take birth control are seen as sluts because then you're preparing for it. Mm -hmm. So it's better to not be on birth control and be swept away in the moment. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, then it is to be on birth control and, and prepare yourself. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, so it's, it's a really fantastic analogy and, and really points at 
what a one of the the roots of this problem, right, is women not being allowed to say yes. We're not allowed to say yes. So, um, and we all we all need to work with that. That's something that that's like women's job, right, mm-hmm. <laughs> is to really look at what we want and need and what we desire and to be okay with it and learn how to ask for it and learn how to put boundaries up around it and, yeah. you know. And, you know, something you brought up, too, um, that uh, struck a chord with me was where you said earlier that, um, you know, in your youth, uh, sex was a way to get that closeness, that intimacy with someone and, yeah. you know, just to be held. And, and um, uh, you know, that's something that, uh, you know, I recently started dating someone and um, and I was like... I was at the point where I was like, I really want to hug this guy. I really want to be close to him. But I'm worried that if I do that, he'll think I want sex. Right. You know, and I'm not ready to, like, go there yet. You know, I wasn't at that point in the relationship. I was like, no. (laughs) Right. That's not what I want to do yet. But, you know, so so that's the other thing, too, is it's it can be hard for men and women, I think, to to up the intimacy, the emotional intimacy and and just that that um, that wonderful thing you get when you just hug someone and you're, you know, cuddling with them and, and, you know, or even kissing, you know, that's just, um, you know, it's that wonderful comfort thing that we want and crave in relationships. Um, but there's, but then you're like, Oh, but then are we, you know, is it going to lead to sex? And, and like you said, most people aren't comfortable with just coming out and saying what they want, Yeah, you know? And, um, you know, I found that in this relationship, you know, the good thing is that he and I are both good at saying what we want and being, you know, honest about that and and respecting one another for, yeah. you know, like, okay, what you want is what you want, you know. And, um, you know, so that's like, to me, that's like wonderful, you know. <laughs> like, this is great, but I know most people... That's not how it is because they haven't gotten to the point yet where they're comfortable with just being that clear about what they want, both men and women. I think most of us, you know, we haven't been taught well, like, how to communicate, you know, emotionally and, you know, unapologetically for what we want, whether it's sexual or otherwise. Yeah. Um, And that's, that's something I think where we can... If we can help our children better express themselves, honestly, and and understanding, too, that when you do that, sometimes people won't understand, and sometimes they will get their feelings hurt, and they will, you know, call you a bitch or a jerk or whatever. And it's really vulnerable to put that out there, right? It's one of the things that makes it really hard. Yeah. And that's okay. I think that's another thing is being okay with that and realizing that not all of life is going to be happy, happy, and and free of conflict and awkwardness. Like, like yeah. if you're living life, there's going to be some awkward moments. <laughs> right? Yeah, there's going to be awkward moments. There's yeah. going to be vulnerability. There's going to be conflict. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I think, I think um, for men, for men and women, and we talk a lot about how you know women talk about their feelings or whatever. But I, but. But talking about and analyzing feelings is not the same as feeling feelings. Right. And and talking about what we need emotionally is something also different, right? Um, and being vulnerable with that. And I and I don't think women are any better at feeling feelings than men are. Because we've been taught to suppress them, just like men. Yes, more so, if anything. <laughs> right, because we and and because we spend all our time talking about them, we can kind of kid ourselves into thinking that we are emotionally developed and this kind of stuff, right? But but if but analyzing something is in your head. That's to analyze. You have to be up and away. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, so it's a cognitive process, right? And so I, I, absolutely. And so I think, I, I actually think that one of the reasons that so many women are like, you know, after their men, I used to call it, uh, I remember realizing that it was like emotional rape basically, right. That I was trying to, 
with my first husband to get him to open up and tell me things he didn't want to tell me. Oh, right. And, and I realize now he had every reason to not feel like I was safe because I wasn't, you know? And, yeah. and, um, and I think that, and a lot of women do this, right? I see it with my clients. I know it from myself that, um, that because we're not feeling our feelings, in an effort to sort of get close to them, we want men to talk to us about theirs mm. and then try to say that the reason that the emotional intimacy is missing in the relationship is because the men aren't talking about their feelings. But the truth of the matter is we're not feeling our feelings. Mm. So if we're, if I'm, if I'm not safe enough in myself to feel my feelings, is he going to be safe with me to feel his feelings? Probably not. And me running after him to tell me how he feels about something when I'm not feeling my own feelings, right? Mm -hmm. Trying to get him to open up and give me something intimate that belongs to his that he's not ready to give me. Mm -hmm. It is emotional rape. It's the same thing, right? Like I'm trying to to pry his heart open instead of my legs being pried open. Do you know what right. I'm saying? Like, yeah. um, and so I, I, like, there's a lot of deep work that has to be done on both sides of this. I think for us to have, um, like a real change Yeah. and, 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 um, what's the word I'm looking for? I mean, it's transformation. Part of the, yeah. Transformation yeah. and reconciliation. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and, um, you know, so, uh, a while back, like it, a few months ago, I was um, doing this program uh, that was about um, attracting genuine love by um, Gay and Katie Hendricks, and um, and and so how they have you do it, you know, like so this is for like single people who want to attract like uh, a really wonderful life partner into a romantic relationship into their life, and and so you know part of the process was getting clear about what you really want in a partner and what you don't want. And then, and then the next step was, all right, now if that's what you want in someone, that's probably what that person wants in you too. So how can you be the person that, um, not exactly the person that you're trying to attract, but like those qualities, right? So if you want honesty, uh, in a partner, then look and say, am I, being honest, honest with myself, myself right? Yeah. You know, and if I want someone who's, you know, feels their feelings, you know, am I feeling my feelings? And so it's taking that opportunity to um, to be the kind of person that your ideal partner would want to be with, right? And to and to really focus on you, ra- rather than like chasing after where's this guy? You know, I gotta right. go get him. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> it doesn't actually work. Right. Like that. Spend yeah. the time and effort doing the work on yourself and figuring out what you really want and where you have opportunities to um, grow personally yeah. into um, you know just like this fabulous version of yourself yeah. that, um, that of course that person would love to be with. Right. And it really is like an inner marriage, right? Like, right. so it's kind of the basis of a lot of the work that I do with singles as well as the mystics have talked about this forever. The, the sacred union, the mystical marriage, like it's about having, having that inside of you. Right. Um, and, and then once you have that inside of you, then you can, then, then the person just, you, it just happens, right? You don't have to go chasing after someone. So, um, but, but then you're also ready. You've done the work so that you can be honest about your feelings. You know what you need, what you want, how to ask for it. You like, and like part of going through that process, right. Is recognizing first of all, how difficult it is and how hard it is to know what you want sometimes. Mm, so there's right. a, so there's a forgiveness in the other person and a, like a gratefulness when someone gives you the space to figure it out for yourself. And then it makes it easier to give someone else that grace and let them figure it out for themselves. Right. Like when you've gone through that process yourself and know what's in it, then when the person across from you is like, Hey, I, I, wait a minute, I need a minute to figure this out. It's like, Oh, okay. I get it. Like, yeah, it's really hard. It took me a while too. You know what I mean? Like, right, yeah. so, um, and, and, uh, and then, you know, like once you've, sort of found that well within or found that part, that sacred partnership inside, there's not like the hunger 
right? So, mm-hmm. so, so you can give someone a little bit more space, you know, and you can hear what they say and recognize like, okay, well, this is this, like giving yourself the full agency enables you to give other people full agency. Okay, so um, in the sort of vein of next steps, right, we talked a little bit about how we can, like the own inner work that we have to do and um, it, working in our relationships and talking to our kids and how we're talking to our kids about it. Um, but the, uh, what is his first name? Nasser is the last name, Dr. Nasser. Um, the, that was the one where there was the trial where like 150 women yeah. came forward with their stories. Yeah, and we yeah. had some Olympic um, Olympic performers that also came up and wow. gave testimony, and um, he was the <clears throat> he was one of the doctors at University of Michigan, I believe. Um, was also like the attending physician for the Olympic gymnastic team and all this kind of stuff. So, um, Allie, Allie Reisman gave very powerful testimony um, about the impact, and at the beginning of the trial. Um, I, I, so I haven't read all the articles about it, um, but I, from what I had gathered, right, there had been talk that they were going to let all the women that had come forward give full testimony. And he had objected and said he wouldn't be able to deal with that, that it was mm-hmm. too, that it was too hard. Um, and I was really glad that the judge was like, yeah, too bad, because um, <laughs> it's also been really hard for these women. So literally the very least you can do is sit and listen to it, right? Um, and so he had to listen to 150 different people standing up and giving testimony about the impact that his abuse had had on them. Um, and in the process also is how much the university system and the Olympic system is implicated because multiple people had they all had stories i believe they come forward they come forward and talked about it yeah totally um so but i but i feel like that trial really was an example of um it gave me a vision of what our justice system could be right um and the sort of like reconciliation process in terms of the victims coming forward and and saying what happened to them right um and being given full voice right um because it is part of the healing process and part of the reconciliation process from what i understand like in south africa after apartheid part of the reconciliation process was people talking about how apartheid had impacted them right Mm -hmm. they just they they had months and months and months of trials Mm -hmm. um and people really coming forward to tell their stories and the people that had been in power having to listen to those stories right Right. um so to have this uh this trial go down like that where um where each of each of the women that had been impacted were invited to give testimony um really, really powerful, really, really powerful stuff. Right. I think, um, and I do hope that there's going to be more that comes after because it was very clear that like, yes, yes, obviously this guy needs to be put away and he got what, 40 to 175 years or something. Um, clearly he needs to be put away, but the system that, um, protected him for so long also needs to be thoroughly examined, right? Like he was on the committees that set the policies for these kinds of reporting. Like he was setting wow. policy to protect athletes from people like him. So, and, and that's, it can't be uncommon. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it, it's gotta be, um, uh, I doubt that there is a university out there <laughs> that does not have, similar people on campus that these kind of problems have happened. Right. Um, so by, by everyone being able to like fully tell their story, then we can start really paying attention to the different ways that we're, um, allowing this stuff to happen and minimizing and turning a, turning a blind eye or whatever. Yeah. So I totally agree with what you're saying. And I'm also, you know, the practical part of me is asking, well, that was, that's great, you know, for the, the administrators and the people at these universities, obviously they need to, um, you know, re-examine uh, how things are happening on their campuses. Um, but then for 
each of us as individuals, yeah, you know, what can we do to uh, to make an impact, to make right. a difference, to create a culture, you know, where this kind of stuff isn't happening? Because it really is happening everywhere, right? right? Everywhere, work, work, school, workplaces, home, relationships, yeah, really, any it's kind everywhere. of relationship, yeah. These these kinds of things can happen, and I think it really all boils down to. At the root of it, the problem is that sex is seen as something shameful. Mm. And yeah, I think you're, yeah. So if we can start in our relationships with each other, start not treating sex like it's something bad. Right. Something you shouldn't talk about, something you shouldn't want. do or want. Yeah. You know, then if we can just be honest that sex is natural sex is something that happens it's something we do want in certain circumstances and being you know then if we can have honest conversations about it right and own it and not feel guilty and shameful i think that goes a long way to creating the foundation for healthy relationships at work at home on our campuses it's certainly the shame around it is why victims stay quiet Right. Right. Um, so it really is at the core of it. And it's interesting because in that Wong piece, right, um, he does talk about uh, all sex being outside of heterosexual marriage is wrong. Mm-hmm. And so consensual or non-consensual has nothing to do with it because you're going to burn in hell if it's not <laughs> heterosexual marriage, um, which is a big reason of why we've got this shame around it, right? Because you're trained to be shamed for so long that, you know, if you've... If you've and these days people don't get married until they're in their mid twenties. So right. if you've had ten years, no, fifteen years of sexual feelings and desires that you've been pushing down and shaming yourself for, it's not suddenly gonna be all like great and awesome yeah. because you're married now, you, well, know, you know, but here's another thing. So and this is something I've noticed is that, you know, you know, when you and I grew up, it would, we were sent this very clear message of you don't have sex until you get married. And I think some people are still being, you Absolutely. know, obviously yeah. sent that message. But yet the fact of the matter is a lot of people are having sex outside of marriage. Yeah, always have been. And so, <laughs> and so it, you know, when, when, the, when the standard was you don't have sex until you get married and you know before that you're courting and there was this very like clear courting ritual and then you got married and then you had sex it was it was it was simpler right it was easier to deal with in the sense that well you just don't have sex till you get married okay you know but then done. you're married by your 14 yeah. right so <laughs> so <laughs> do we really want to go back to that yeah no, totally no, no. <laughs> uh, yeah the shotgun wedding kind of situation yeah so so it's like, well, now we have to talk about it, right? We yeah. can't just go, well, we're just not going to talk about it. And then when you're married, you go talk to your other married girlfriends about, you know, right. it's like no, now we have to address it earlier and we have to be honest and open about it because, you know, hardly anyone's waiting <laughs> until they're married. Yeah. Well, and we wait, for, we wait much longer time to get married. So there can be some like serious psychological damage that's done by trying to push those desires down. It's very natural, right? Yeah. So, um, and Judith Plaskow, who is a Jewish feminist theologian, um, has written a book, uh, Lilith Returns, I want to say it is. I'll, I'll look it up and we'll put it in the show notes. But in one of her, um, like uh, scripture study groups, they decided to rewrite this chapter in Leviticus that has all these sexual laws, right? Um, and it gets read as part of one of the the Jewish holy days. So, um, so there were these congregations that were having big problems with it, and some of the congregations just stopped reading it and switched to another chapter in Leviticus. But then that caused a problem because there are injunctions against. Um, uh, molestation, I think that's in it. Some pe- some people were like, "Well, I think we need to say out loud that it's not okay because I was molested, and it makes me feel good to hear somebody from the from the, from from the pulpit saying this isn't okay, right?" So her group rewrote Leviticus for the modern frame, and going back to the sort of idea that okay, there's a reason to have discussions about social sexual mores and how that fits in society and what brings society forward and what holds it back. Um, and this was the one that was appropriate for that place and time. But now we need to rethink what that means in the modern place and time. And what she rewrote is 
really beautiful. And it does talk a lot about consent. <laughs> um, and it does talk about coming from a sex positive, right? Because the Leviticus that's in the Bible is very, don't do this, don't do that. This is an abomination. Um, and so sort of recognizing the impact that that can have on setting up this shame, which creates these environments where power abuse can happen and things like this, right? Going from a sex positive perspective and saying, okay, we recognize that this is natural and beautiful and good, but here are the things that we need to frame it with in order for it to be healthy, right? And not cause these malignancies in society, right? So we'll put that in the, we'll have a reference to that in the show notes too, so folks can look at it. Um, Because I think there are a lot of different ways. This is not something that has to happen in secular communities only. Like, I think Plaskow's work shows that you can still be within those traditions and very traditional in those traditions and still find a frame to be able to talk about this in a way that's really healthy. It's going to bring us away from, because obviously if our way of handling it is... Outdated. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if it's allowing these kinds of atrocities to happen... Um, unchecked, then clearly we need to reframe what's how yeah. we've been thinking about it. And what better place to do that than in a religious context, which has to do very much with moral values. And yeah, so there's definitely a responsibility there to, you know, the various religious institutions to look at how are we going to take, you know, uh, the very, the fundamental values and translate that into um, more specific. Well, and get to a place where we're not using scripture that's supposed to be giving moral values to excuse really immoral behavior. I mean, there were 50 50 ministers that signed off to promote Roy Moore. (laughs) Do you know what I'm saying? Like, um, so, you know, that's obviously like a total bastardization of what those texts are supposed to be used for. So, Mm. um, so finding way, I think we're being, religious communities are being called to question what's godly and ungodly and have another conversation about it. But I think, uh, regardless of where you are in culture, it's quite clear that, we need to be having this conversation on very right. deep levels. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's, it's definitely the whole idea that sex is evil and bad is is just is clearly outdated, and we need to start treating it like that. So glad that you could join us today, and we are here to start a conversation, not be the conversation. So we would love to have you join us uh, around the digital campfire. Uh, you can come to the Facebook page, find Kitchen Table Alchemy, the group, um, and that's a great place to connect with other people, uh, talk about what we've been talking about, also to find out where our next pop-up podcast is going to be, and Pinterest, find us on Pinterest. So that article that you were looking for, that you've scrolled through and you can't find it, it's probably on the Pinterest board. So uh, go find the Kitchen Table Alchemy group over on Pinterest. And for the latest episodes, you can go to our website, kitchentablealchemy.com, or you can subscribe through iTunes. And that way it's downloaded automatically. You don't have to remember anything. That's that's what I like. <laughs> so yeah, so we've loved having you. Y'all come back now, you hear? here. <laughs>